Leaning Toward Wisdom, Modern Tales of an Ancient Pursuit. It's the podcast, Pursuing a More Modest Lifestyle. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. My name is Randy Cantrell. I am your host here. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. Thank you for clicking play. My life began, like all humans, as a simpleton. I was a child and then a kid. It was all pretty simple. Well, which is a good thing when you're a simpleton. Well, at least it was until I got to junior high, and that's when I'm, well... (laughs) I was no longer a child, but man, that was a million miles away ago. Junior high was complicated because of relationships and girls. Yeah, for those of you who care. I'm recording this inside the yellow studio version 2.0. It's August. You're probably not listening to this until September. I've confided with you guys. I have, uh, been on a, been on a roll, man. Been recording, 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 and working on a whole bunch of stuff. I, I completely understand that there, there's an absolute theme theme to life these days, but I've, I've also told you before that leaning toward wisdom is a project of documentation. It is a project of legacy. It is a project of insights and experience and whatever wisdom I've collected along the way. I don't claim to have it. We're all just trying to lean toward wisdom. Things didn't complicate my life so much as I got older and as I entered junior high, because as you know, frankly, at that age, as long as you don't stick out like a sore thumb among your friends, you're, you're pretty good. And I grew up very middle class. And so were most of the kids that I knew. I didn't grow up really making a distinction between the economic prowess of somebody's parents. In grade school, my best friend, Terry, he lived right across the street from the school in a very modest, really small frame house. I knew his family. I knew they were not as well off as mine, but it didn't, it had zero impact on my relationship with him. And it absolutely had no impact on how I viewed him. It just, it never crossed my mind that my family was somehow smarter, better, more clever or anything else. But Hey, let's not start with the past. Let's jump to the present. My son on August the 17th turned 42 And that prompted me to think about this span between my 42nd birthday and well, my last birthday where I turned 65 leaning toward wisdom began when I was 42, 23 years ago. It's a long time at 42. I was like my son. I was, you know, I was hitting the prime of my professional life. He is as well. But my life was also growing increasingly complicated. 
my son was turning 19. And so we were in the throes of kids entering college. Um, junior high kids cost more than elementary school kids and high school kids cost even more. It could be argued that college kids might cost the most because of, well, the expense of college, but you know, our kids worked, so I'm not really sure. I really think for us, I, I think, I think high school might've been the most expensive years. I don't know. I haven't done a spreadsheet on it. You know, because you've got the cost of sports during high school. Um, I don't know. For us, frankly, it was probably a toss-up. You know, just flip a coin, high school, college. Again, I haven't put a spreadsheet to it. It doesn't matter because financially things naturally grow increasingly more complicated as the kids grow up. And as parents, as we age. So enter a bigger house, enter a nicer neighborhood, enter all the demanding things that come to your life, uh, that require more money up front, as well as more money on going, <laughs> enter more cars in the driveway, uh, parked out front, more insurance, more maintenance, more complexity. It happens. Just look around. If it hasn't happened to you, look around. It's happening all around you. And if it hasn't happened to you, it likely will. As kids grow up and enter adulthood, life grows more complicated then, but in a different sort of way because, well, lives are growing more independent. And that's exactly what we want as parents, but it's not simple. It's not easy. I'm thinking back. My son one day announced that he was going to leave. He was going to move to another state that, you know, he, he wanted to kind of give this a go. And when that happens, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking back, you do what you have to do. You say what you have to say. You grind your way through the sadness and the sorrow and the worry. I, I walked so many night miles in our neighborhood during that time that he was away. I, there's, I probably should have tracked that did a lot of walking. Did a lot of 3 a.m. walking. Then sometime later, he came back home. Well, man alive, did my heart soar. Right? I mean, you feel like you can breathe again. And if you're like I was, you dive more fully into being present for your kids like never before. And it's not like I wasn't before, but boy, then it was different. And he's in college and. We enjoyed a ton of that experience because, well, I was coaching the college roller hockey team and there was that, but these are complicated years as you attempt to help your kids navigate these uncharted waters of their lives and they are in search of their own independence. And it's something that as parents, we had always tried to help them pursue, especially from high school forward. Birds leaving the nest. It's a great, great, great thing. It's a terrific achievement watching them, even admiring them, figure this out. It's always worthwhile, even during tremendous challenges because, well, we were in it together. We were in it together with a united purpose. We're preparing them for life in the real world, preparing them to stand on their own, trying to help them exercise wisdom to figure all this out and to do it while you put God first. 
you know, those, I think back, those were not easy years except financially, because we were fortunate. We were fortunate to have a good income and mostly we didn't fret much about money. Uh, we weren't foolish. We weren't stupid. As I've said before about cash flowing our life, it has been our way of life. And so we were never tempted to live beyond our means. Now, did we buy some things foolishly? Of course we did. Did we make some financial mistakes yet? Yeah, well, yes, I did. Most notably, I trusted a business deal that cost us $50,000 due to my idiocy. And that's something that I've never quite gotten over thanks to the betrayal of a friend, but you know, come on, these things happen. And I mostly got past it. I think thanks in large part to the fact that such an amount while large, it really didn't impact our lives. And then I was thinking as I was crafting today's show, you know, there was a time in our life when a hundred bucks would have made a big, big difference. And so I was thankful that, Hey, at least we had it to lose without too much consequence financially. Anyway, mentally and emotionally, that's a whole nother thing, but you know, life consists of more than money. It consists of more than things because complexity can come in other ways, other forms, figuring out where you fit in the world, figuring out who you want to go through this world with. These can be complexities that, well, they've got much bigger consequences than money or the lack of, I mean, money problems can be more easily solved, quite frankly, by making more or spending less, or if you're super wise doing both at the same time, I'm not minimizing those problems. I am not minimizing financial problems because we have known those struggles. We've made big sacrifices to climb our way out of problems. And even though most or much of our life has been fairly good financially, it hasn't been that way a hundred percent of the time. And we've been knocked down and dragged out and sometimes felt like we were jerked through a knothole backwards, but I'm thankful for the lessons. I'm thankful for the lessons that we learned in the struggle. There are not too many days that go by that. I don't look at my wife and say, I'm happy to keep our problems. And it usually happens in the context of us commenting or lamenting or informing one another about somebody we know who's going through something. And I don't mean that to sound callous because I'm not, my heart goes out. My empathy is always, always off the charts, but I say it with all humility and truthfulness. I'm happy to keep our problems. I learned a long time ago that this whole grass is greener on the, on the other side of the fence phenomenon is born largely because we're over here on this side of the fence and we know what the grass is like over here. We're not over there. We're only looking over there, but we're not looking at it from the same perspective that we're looking on the ground that we're standing on. So that ground over there, that, that grass, doesn't that grass look greener to you? Well, it does from here, but if you were over there, Okay. Well, you'd see the thorns and you'd see the bristles and you'd see the, yeah, you'd see all the stuff that you see where you're standing. And so it's kind of in that context that I'm familiar with our problems. I'm, I'm pretty content to keep the problems that we've got. Thank you very much. A more modest lifestyle means financially. So I'm going to start there, even though I've just admitted that humans can create more complexity than money. 
because there can be a ton of things. There can be relationships and situations and all kinds of circumstances that happen to us. But the truth is all of these can be hard to figure out. When I say financially, I also mean stuff. I mean, possessions because well, it's true. Possessions were money before they were possessions. I remember being a teenager selling stereo gear. I would spend money and I would think, okay, what did I have to sell? Cause I was working on straight commission. What did I have to sell? How much did I have to sell in order to buy this? I don't know why I thought like that. I still think like that. My first job selling hi-fi equipment paid me 10% of the gross amount of the sale on loudspeakers. So if I sold a pair of $300 speakers, I earned 30 bucks. Pretty good. No, actually check that. It was phenomenal. It was great. Okay. You didn't sell $300 worth of speakers every day though. One time I went into the store, it was my day off and I stopped by to pick up my paycheck and they happened to be fairly busy and maybe short staffed. I don't remember. I just remember being asked by the manager. His name was Chris. He asked me if I would go help this couple. I wasn't even really dressed for it. Uh, I had jeans and a flannel shirt on. And I remember going up and meeting them and explaining to them that it was my day off, but I, I didn't want them to linger. And I was happy to help them minutes later. I'm ringing up a complete system that included a $500 pair of speakers, cha-ching $500, 50 bucks, just the commission on the speakers. I made more on that day off than any other day I could remember when I was scheduled to be working. And of course the co my coworkers, they were very pleased with me having dropped by uh-huh. knowing how many hours I had to put in, knowing how many shoppers I had to serve in order to make 30 bucks or 50 bucks or any given amount. It, it gave me a perspective as I'd plop down at the time, you know, about five bucks for an album or 10 bucks for a couple of albums. It just always seemed weirdly strange to me how long it took me to make a dollar versus how quickly I could spend it. Right. I mean, you go in, you plop down five bucks for a record at the time, back in the seventies, like, you know, I mean, this happens in mere, well, for me, it didn't happen in mere minutes because I would spend hours browsing, but parting with the five bucks just took mere seconds. And besides that, there was always for me, something to having money in your pocket. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe I I had grown up watching old men pull these huge wads of bills wrapped in a rubber band. And I always wondered why are these guys carrying so much cash? Now, later I would learn, well, one, they had money Two, many of them did not trust banks. Keep in mind, these were old men. When I was a young man, they had survived the great depression. And thirdly, they were negotiators. These were horse traders, quite literally and figuratively. And at a moment's notice, they could buy something at a deep discount because they had the cash in their pocket. Well, I had some money. I didn't have as much as they had. I did. I trusted banks. And I was, I was rarely on the prowl for something that I could buy at a deep discount. I would not describe myself as a horse trader. Turns out many of these old men, they made as much money flipping stuff as they, 
as they could, <laughs> as they could by working because, well, they, they could buy it cheap. I mean, man alive. I heard all kinds of lingo growing up. I'll give you $500 cash right now. <laughs> well, you're thinking, man, 500 bucks cash. Well, yeah, that's great. Except, you know, hours later, the dude's going to flip it for a grand tempting the seller when the old man peels off $500 bills and, and they would, you know, right. It's, I mean, showing it's partly it's showing off, but partly it's, yeah, there they are. Well, if a person's desperate enough and five crisp $100 bills are sitting in front of them, even though they know that they might could get more, especially if they needed it, they need it now. Never mind that. I always thought it was counterproductive. It just didn't seem, it seemed psychologically incongruent to me. So you make an offer of five, I'll give you $500 cash right now. You pull out a wad that is three inches thick. You unwind the rubber band around it and you peel off five crisp $100 bills, but you've got way more than that. And it seemed to me that, well, if the guy selling it says, you know, make it seven, make it eight, make it nine. I don't remember seeing that happen very much though. It just never seemed to matter. I still don't understand it, but I'm not a horse trader. As I look around at my stuff, uh, the pre purge days of my stuff, you know, and I see those 1500 books or so and the prices, well, the prices that the sticker prices of these books, the list price, if you please. And they're not all hardback. So the prices are going to range. Let's call it five to 25 bucks. Some might be 29.95 list price. And I got a discount because I was, you know, Barnes and Noble had that, whatever that club that you could be a part of every year, they still may. And I, I was always a member of that. So I could always buy these for 10 to 30% off. But if you figure an average price of say 10 bucks and you got 1500 bucks, well, now you start to think about the effort required to earn that $22,500, roughly the investment made in me buying those books. And I just boxed them up, carted them up to the local library, donated them. Oh, by the way, a few weekends ago, they had a sale. Ron and I were going to pull through there and drive, but there was a crowd. Hardcover books were a dollar. Now, only I can judge if the 22,500 bucks was worth it. And I'm going to tell you, yes, it was. But it was worth it only because I had the money to invest in the books and only because I read them and only because I didn't plop 22,500 bucks out at one time. This was over the course of a long time, but these books outlived their usefulness for me. I was done. I was finished with them. It was time for somebody else to find value in them. And I could only realize that when I understood that holding on to them was now a burden, not a blessing time to let go. And so I did, like I said, I didn't amass these books overnight. Didn't, I didn't gather them over the course of a single year. I accumulated them bit by bit, book or two at a time, sometimes way more. The collection grew as most unmanaged stuff does. And so now, well, now the goal is a more modest collection of books. I probably kept about four shelves worth modesty with books. And that's what it looks like for me. That's what 
a modest lifestyle with books looks like for me. It looks like a few shelves as opposed to many bookshelves. It, it looks like it looks like less than a hundred books versus fifteen hundred books. And I really love books. But you know what? I really love the books that I kept. Because I didn't love all these books that I parted with. I love some of them, but I didn't love them as much as the ones that I kept. Because if I would have, I would have kept them. So for me, modest living is not about parting with things that I love. It's about letting go of the things that I really don't love or the things that I'm indifferent to or the things that I don't love as much. An important fact for me is that my current pursuit of modest living is less about necessity. It's more about desire. But both of them, both of them are in play. Necessity and desire are both in play because I know that as we grow older, me and Rhonda, we are going to continue to change And I need to insert a word here in our discussion because it's critical to the process. And I brought it up already. And that word is burden, burden and burden is a two-sided issue. There is the burden on us, me and Rhonda, and there's the burden that we potentially could be to others. And so let's start with the burden on us. There's a website called breakthetwitch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And he defines minimalism like this. Minimalism is defined as a design or style in which the simplest and fewest elements are used to create the maximum effect. Now, minimalism, if you look at it and study it at all, it really had a start in the art and the design world back in the 60s. Physical minimalism has grown to encompass a lifestyle of seeing how little you can get by with. And so today it's pretty common for you to find folks that, you know, they've kind of got this backpack mentality. I jokingly say to somebody almost every day that I'm working my way toward fitting all my possessions in a backpack. And then I'll stop and say, "Eh, okay, maybe a modest sized duffel bag. I'm being snarky. That really isn't the goal or the objective because not everybody approaches it that way. You can find as many varieties of minimalism as you can almost anything else. And I just say to each his own, I am not interested in seeing how little I can own. I am not interested in seeing how much I can get rid of. Well, okay. That I told you before I've admitted that kind of sort of became a, it's kind of like limbo, right? It's how low can you go, man? I mean, how much can you, that absolutely did happen to me, but that really isn't the goal or the objective. I'm very interested though, in unburdening myself that includes possessions, but it's not restricted to that because it includes things that can preoccupy me. It can include things that I may fret about. It includes things that I might worry a little bit about. It includes relationships that for me are harmful, toxic, unproductive. It includes pursuits. It includes ambitions that I have that may, that may have proven unfruitful, unfulfilling. So why am I hanging on? It's an approach that I began to describe to best represent how such things were impacting me. And that word was burdensome. And so I became highly motivated to unburden myself of things that did not have high utility, high value. Now, some folks might criticize an approach like that as well, you know, that's just, it's too lofty. It's too restrictive. It's too picky. You know, I don't care. I don't care. 
because this is my life and I know what I'm aiming for. I know why I'm aiming for it. And the why, the why is really crucial here. It begins for me with spiritual health and then it moves on to mental or emotional health and lastly, physical health. So you've got spiritual, mental slash emotional and physical. And these priorities, including spiritual life and including my relationship life, mostly my wife, my family and my physical life, which encompasses well, it doesn't just include my physical health, but it includes my physical surroundings. All three of these things intersect. They, they all cross over. None of them is isolated from one another. For example, the only way to practice spiritual life is to put it into action. And as the scriptures show us words without actions are meaningless. James two sixteen, And one of you say unto them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. And yet you give them not the things they need for the body. What doth it profit? Well, it doesn't profit anything. So spiritual living, like every other kind of living begins in our head when we make up our minds, but it moves forward because it drives our behavior. It drives our decisions, which drive our behavior and our choices. Otherwise it is completely worthless. Now, the same could be said for emotional and mental health. It's largely in our heads, but maybe it's physical. We do have these chemicals in our body, and they impact it big time. How we think, how we feel, these are urgent, urgent, urgent areas of our life. Internal, external conditions, they have an impact. And so we have to be careful what we think. We have to be careful how we think. And we have to guard and protect our minds by who and what surrounds us. I mean, there's stimuli everywhere. Well, hello, Bill. You've got one in your hand right now, your cell phone. And then there's weather and there's people and there's activities and there's to-do lists and there's TV and there's YouTube and there's words and there's pictures, there's video. I mean, look around, listen, think, what do you feel? What things in life are making you feel the way you feel? Why are you thinking what you're thinking? Why are you thinking the way you think? And again, we're bombarded every second with a stimulus that impacts our thinking. And that thinking is what generates our feelings. And then of course, our choices and our actions, and sometimes our physical surroundings, they can help generate a stillness in us. Not very often. We got to really work at that one because most of the time, the easy thing that our surroundings create for us is chaos. Okay, maybe it's something between stillness and chaos. But stillness, you and I both know, is hard. Chaos is way easier. I've tried for the past four years to get in deeper touch with all of these things. And it is not easy work. It is not for the faint of heart either. It is not for those who lack the courage to face reality. It is not for those who don't really want to give deep, pondering thought to such things. And you can sit there and think, well, man, four years, that's a long slog. But I know people, and you do too, who have slogged much, much longer. Come on, when you're hiking down a dark trail of a challenging time, and you're just hoping that you eventually find a clearing, I mean, just some place where you can get your bearings and you can recognize where you are, it's exhausting. But what's the option? I mean, you got to keep going. 
Because going back, well, you know that's not your best option because you've been there. You know where that's at, and that's not where you need to be or where you want to be. And when your ideal outcome, when you positively know that your ideal outcome is somewhere ahead, you just don't know where, and you don't know how long it's going to take you to get there. I mean, what's the option? There is no option. You keep going. Joshua Becker, he is a minimalist. He's an expert on the practice of minimalism. He's also, he's also the author of a blog, Becoming Minimalist. He is the author of a book as well, The Minimalist Home, a room-by-room guide to a decluttered, refocused life. Well, I was online, and in the course of all this stuff, I was reviewing one of his articles that was excerpt from that book, and the name of this blog post was Love the Home You Live In. And in this article, Joshua provokes thoughts about how we might employ simplicity and a more modest lifestyle. And he asks a great question. What if the problem is that we're living in the homes that advertisers and retailers want us to have instead of the homes that deep down we really want and need? I got to thinking about that and I thought, well, he's probably right. He mentions in it, you know, these home makeover shows and I've long thought, well, I've thought a few things. Number one, if you could take a close look at the home after it was made over, you would probably realize the quality probably ain't all that great. It photographs well, but it probably isn't all that. And then some, have you ever been on a TV set? Yeah. Well, go visit one. If you have a chance, many of these look great on TV. And when you go and you see them, there's like, man, kind of rough here and kind of rough there. I'd bet you that many of these homes are the same way. I also do believe that it panders to our, our natural challenge and our natural quest to be better, have it better. And so you watch one show and you're like, Oh man, that's awesome, man. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then there's the next episode and it's, Oh man, well that would be really great. And it, it can foster this ongoing onslaught of dissatisfaction and lustfulness toward something better. Joshua writes, I know from years of experience that by getting rid of the excess stuff in every room, you can transform your home so that you feel not only free from the stress of so much clutter around you, but also free to live a life focused on what you want to do with your limited years on this planet. I can attest to you. I'm early on in the process. I get it but I can attest to you that he's right because that too has been my experience. And I'm rather confident that will continue to be my experience. Modest living versus minimalism. Is there a difference? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I've looked around online and I found some discussions that people are having as they're searching for kind of a more appropriate description of how they are trying to approach this whole thing. And like me, it seems that there are quite a lot of folks that are looking for a simpler, easier way to live. They're committed to rid themselves of unnecessary stuff and to declutter. But like me, they really don't think of themselves as minimalist. And so on one of those forums, somebody suggested the description Spartan. The problem is that Spartan, as the community kind of jumped on board and began to dissect that word, the community said, you know, the problem with that is it denotes lacking luxury or comfort. And so people kind of quickly shot that down because most of these people are like, you know, I'm not trying to get rid of luxury or comfort. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm inclined to lean into the moniker minimalist. (laughs) 
I just think there can be varying levels. Well, I think there are varying levels of it, just like most other things. I mean, for example, a minimalist might be this international traveler who carries every possession he has in a single backpack or a duffel bag. Or a minimalist might be a person who's living in a tiny home with possessions that are all high utility. Or a minimalist might be a person who's living in a large, elegant home with luxurious possessions but devoid of abundance and clutter. Well, if the backpacker on the scale of minimalism is a 10 and the high-end luxury homeowner on the scale of minimalism is a 1, okay, well, I'm likely a 5 or a 6. Still a minimalist, but more middle of the road. I dubbed it many, many months ago practical minimalism, which I know is relative because, well, it's how I think about it. And probably I think about it that way because my wife and I are both extremely practical people. So I'm going to stick with that description. Practical minimalism. Modest living is practical minimalism. We are ridding ourselves of things we don't use, things we don't need, things we don't love. And what remains, hopefully, will be practical and modest. That means high utility, fewer in number. But we'll love them, like the books that I kept. Otherwise, they're not going to make the long-haul cut. Now, according to this article that Joshua Becker wrote, there are two big benefits of a minimalist home. Number one, a minimized home is a better place to come home to. Without all the clutter, you'll find that your home is more relaxing and less stressful. With fewer things competing for your attention, you'll appreciate more and make better use of what you have. You'll be able to focus more on the people and activities in the home that bring you joy. I know some people fear that minimizing their home will make it feel cold and impersonal, but I assure you, through minimizing, you'll feel more at home than ever. It will be a place you anticipate returning to at the end of every day or relaxing in for a weekend. Number two, a minimized home is a better place to go out from. After you minimize, you'll be buying less stuff and spending less on repairs and maintenance, leaving you with more cash in your bank account what I call a minimalism dividend that you can use for other purposes. Even more important because you'll be spending less time and energy cleaning, organizing, and taking care of your possessions. You'll have more time and energy left over for dreaming and planning for the future. With these extra resources, you'll be better prepared to go out into the world, whether it's for a day's work an evening entertainment or a life changing adventure. Now, you might disagree with those conclusions, but we are pursuing, Rhonda and I are pursuing a more modest lifestyle because we believe in what we're doing. For us, it's the right decision. And frankly, every day I'm growing more excited. I'm growing more excited about ending this current chapter of our lives and beginning this next one, this more modest lifestyle. I know, listen, I know it's the beginning chapter of an encore series of chapters. Well, I hope so, but I, I could have fully embraced this earlier in life. I just did not have the wisdom to pursue it. I didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the desire today. I have the insights, the experience, the knowledge, the wisdom, and mostly I have the desire. I have the determination I've made up my mind. And so has my wife. When I mention the terms minimalism or modesty, you know, some people automatically think of less and they think, well, less is less rather than less is more, or even considering that less could be more. I'm finding out so far that it definitely is more, more simple, more enjoyable, more liberating, more joyful. 
more time is one thing I'm looking forward to and more freedom from homeowner to-do list. The other night, Rhonda and I are winding the day down at our usual late hour after a day's work, uh, followed by her diving into yard work for a few hours and other chores. Lately, our lives have been pretty topsy-turvy. And I remarked that we have not been able to sit down to eat a meal together, except for the rare times that we go out to eat. And we don't go out to eat even every week. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm looking forward to the next chapter where we get home. And the only thing to do is whatever we want to do. And, and sometimes doing it together. Um, yeah, I was being kind of snarky, but I was also being a hundred percent truthful. I'm anticipating. No, that's the wrong word. I'm looking forward to early evening wind downs versus late night wind downs because the added bandwidth in our lives is exactly what I'm looking for. And it's exciting. It's super exciting to think about for days. I've been imagining what we might pursue. I mean, who knows? We'll figure it out. Modesty's enemy. Well, one of them, and I think it's a big one for most of it is our desire to be impressive. You know, we're ashamed to drive the 15 year old cars because we're worried what other people might think. I mean, never mind that it's paid for. Never mind that it runs fine, gets us reliably from place to place. We pull into a parking spot, you know, slump shouldered and fearful that somebody's going to see us and that people will think less of us. And so we buy more, more car than is necessary for us, but quite, quite necessary because well. We want other people to think highly of us or we shut out the noise in our head and the real or imagined scorn of others. And we just pursue what's going to bring us more peace, more joy. There are many advantages of growing older. And among them, I am here to tell you is the reality that you just don't care that much about the approval of others. And frankly, you really even care less about their disdain. <laughs> now my view may not be the best and my view absolutely may not be for you. And that's perfectly okay. It is what it is. You and I both know this whole leaning toward wisdom is an individual journey and we're each making it. Are there some commonalities? Well, for sure. Uh, but sometimes it's way easier to spot foolishness than it is wisdom. After four decades plus of marriage, and the realization that it is us, it's just the two of us. It's she and I, and that we are the ones who are in control of our life together, that we can build the life that we most want, or we can compromise. And so far we have both decided that we're not going to compromise. Instead, we're going to chase a more modest lifestyle because it's liberating. It's joyful. It. It's extremely practical. Now we're doing this for us. So that's the selfish part of it, but we're also doing it for our family. You know, it's important for us to provide as much value as possible for one another and for our marriage, but also for our families, our desires, then they can extend out from there. Doesn't mean I don't care about you. Doesn't mean I don't care about anybody else. It just means that. There's this circle of people that are really, 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 really important. And then the importance 
extends out from there. Ron and I, we are in complete agreement, you know, about how life works and about how we think it ought to work. Uh, number one, we're both Christians. God is the priority. Heaven is the goal for us to successfully get out of this life and into the next one. But we also, I think we're also in complete agreement as to how life ought to work here. That is, she and I are a family. And that that family, which means our marriage, has got to be a priority. Now, we love our tribe. Don't get me wrong. There are eight members besides she and I in the tribe, 10 of us total. And those other eight people, they represent, well, they represent two other families. So if you count me and Rhonda as one, there's two others. So a tribe of 10 consists of three families. And each one takes priority within their own inner circle. That's how it is. That's how Rhonda and I both feel like it should be. I mean, we wouldn't have it any other way. Come on. We train our kids to be independent and to focus on their own families. And there would be disappointment. There would be great disappointment if that did not happen. And now as grandparents, we have our place in the tribe and we understand our place in the tribe. But within our tribe are these three smaller tribes where the focus, well, there's two others. The focus should not be on us. In fact, it would not be right if the focus were on us because we got to focus on each other. The pursuit of a more modest lifestyle is important for us to fulfill the role that she and I most want moving forward. We are most important to each other. And we both understand that we are lesser important to the rest of the tribe. It's got nothing to do with being loved less. It's just, it's again, I keep using this word practical because it's so applicable as time moves on. She and I both know that we are going to grow increasingly less important and rightfully so. I mean, come on, it happens with all of us. And I think only the most selfish older folks don't understand what's going on. The last thing we want is to grow older and become burdensome to anybody, especially to our family. I'm leaning real hard into maintaining relevance. And I haven't talked a lot about it. Maybe that's a subject for another day. I won't dive into it too much, but I'm always fascinated. You know, you, you hear the stereotypical story of, you know, the older folks who, yeah, you know, the kids never call. Well, you do know you can call them. And I'm thinking of that Harry Chapin song, you know, cats in the cradle. Well, there's no question that there is some truth to that song that a parent can live incredibly self-centered and be so captivated by other pursuits and neglect kids that grow up and they do become just like you, or they could in that they weren't there while you were growing up. And now that they're older, you don't much care. It's completely understandable, but there's also this thing of burdens being burdensome that I think pertains to being relevant. And 
I know that makes us sound like as humans, we're, you know, we've just got this, we've either got a utility factor or we don't. And I, I don't mean it like that. Just hang with me here as we kind of wind down. For me, relevance is a focus on others, pure and simple, because I've had enough old, older people in my life. You pick up the phone and all you do is say hello. And it's just, it's just, it's basically groundhog day all over again. We all know this. Now I completely understand that there are things that happen with an aging mind. I get it. We repeat ourselves and that kind of stuff. I get it. But I think by and large where many older people miss the boat is just being too stinking selfish and not staying interested. Number one, in what's going on Two, tapping the brakes on their strong opinions. And number three, be interested in other people. Just how about you ask a question about how somebody's doing and you listen. Oh, and how about you show some genuine interest? That's not hard for me and Rhonda. It hasn't been. And we're both mindful that that habit, that practice needs to continue. And the minute we may sense that, you know, okay, we're kind of getting, we're kind of getting a little too wrapped up in just us and what's going on with us, then it's going to be time for us to course correct. And for us coupled with this pursuit of a modest lifestyle is how we're going to work really hard to not be a burden. As we grow older, we don't want to be a burden to anybody, especially our family. You know, a big part of our encore chapter is focused on remaining self-sufficient and then some for the rest of our life, because it's about providing value for others. It's a first about providing value to each other. Secondarily, value to the rest of our tribe. And thirdly, value to anybody else in our sphere. And for us, modesty matters. That's our new motto. Okay, it's my new motto. But I'm pretty sure Rhonda would embrace it. Because she already has by her actions. been a broken record for a few months here at the house with phrases like high utility modest lifestyle simplicity purging <laughs> minimalism just trying to make things as easy as possible as worry-free as possible because you and I both know life is not worry-free. It just isn't. I don't know that it was intended to be. I just don't want to add to it, right? Let's just... Can we mitigate it a little bit? I think we can. We have met the enemy and way too frequently he is us. Because we have subjected ourselves to being burdened with all kinds of stuff, all kinds of people, all kinds of circumstances that don't serve us 
as we are trying to serve others. Pursuing a more modest lifestyle. Thanks for clicking play. Leaning Toward Wisdom is the podcast. LeaningTowardWisdom.com is the website. Modern Tales of an Ancient Pursuit. My name is Randy Cantrell. From Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. <laughs>